2, the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, uh, for the message God has put on, our, on my heart today. Uh, we started last week a Christmas series of messages entitled The Questions of Christmas. Actually, two weeks ago, uh, we, we, we talked about what about worship? Why, does the, why are we to come and worship, come and worship Christ the Lord? We talked about that. Last week, we considered the question, what about the virgin birth? What's that all about? How is that even possible? And what the Bible says about that great, important doctrine. And this morning, we're going to consider the question, what about the inn? What about the inn? And we find that story, we find that reference, we find that truth here in Luke chapter 2, the, uh, the gospel's account of the birth of Christ. And look at verse number 6, Luke chapter 2, verse 6. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Heavenly Father, would you help us this morning? Uh, Lord, would you uh, help us to lay aside everything else that's going on today? And Lord, for the next few moments to consider your word, to listen for the sweet Holy Spirit of God speaking in a still small voice to our heart and our mind. Lord, I want to be a blessing. I want to be a help to you and to your work. Lord, I want to be a blessing and encouragement to your people. And so, Father, as the Word of God goes forth this morning, I pray for wisdom. I pray for discernment. Lord, I pray for enabling. I pray for uh, an anointing of God upon the truth. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that doesn't know you as Savior, may today be the day that they trust Christ. Lord, if there's a Christian that, for whatever reason, isn't right with you today, Lord, may this be the day that they get restored to fellowship. Lord, if there's someone here that needs encouragement, Father, I pray that the sweet mystery and miracle of Christmas would shine so brightly in their heart that they can't hope but be encouraged in their faith. Father, we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory for all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a little bit of a ring up here. Maybe you want to can turn down the, um, the monitor. Maybe that's where it's coming from. As hectic as the Christmas season has become, I think most of us, if not all of us, savor the joy of the season. As our world seemingly keeps roaring toward an uncertain future, Christmas becomes somewhat of a security blanket that uh, connects us to the past. The sights, the sounds, the smells of this sacred time of year can't help but bring back old memories. But I would caution you to pause and remember that even in the midst of all of that, those things ought to remind us of a Savior. The Savior who entered into human history through the womb of a virgin in a Bethlehem barn. Now think about that a moment. Many of us, maybe even most of us, haven't probably visited a barn 
in quite some time, if ever. Can I tell you this about a barn? The aroma is anything but holy. The hay makes many of us sneeze. There's insects and all other kinds of ook abounding. Amen. And to our way of thinking, it's strange that the Son of God came to earth in the presence not of earthly dignitaries, in the presence not of world leaders, but the Son of God came to the earth in the presence of animals. He arrived not in a palace, but in a stable. He came in simplicity, not extravagance. And the Lord Jesus Christ demanded none of the world's comforts and none of the world's protections. From his very first moment as a human being, Jesus came exposed to all of the dangers the world could offer. I can't help but wonder if peering through the dimness of that cave or in the darkness of that stable, Joseph and Mary probably had to admit that at very first glance, their baby seemed like any other newborn child. He cried in the middle of the night. He hungered for milk. He needed a fresh set of swaddling clothes every now and then. But understand, my friend, Jesus is like no other baby who has ever been born. For he was fully human and fully divine simultaneously. Nothing about the humanity of Jesus could or would detract from his godliness. And nothing from the godliness of Jesus could or would ever detract from his humanity. And that's only because Jesus is the only one who can and will reconcile the Father in heaven with his children on earth. See, Jesus Christ is a man of both worlds. He is the only bridge by which God comes to earth and by which people come to heaven. So in that regard, the virgin birth is the true sign of his divinity. We talked about that last Sunday morning. He came to earth from outside of earth. He came to earth pure and clean. He was in no way a product of this world. The Bible tells us that his mother Mary had not known a man, but the Holy Spirit of God overshadowed her, and the power of the Most High came upon her. Therefore, the Holy One born to her would be God himself. And in much the same way, the infancy of the Lord Jesus Christ is a sign of his humanity. Sometimes we forget, but the fact of the matter is, the Lord Jesus had ten fingers and ten toes. He had a nose. He had ears. He had a good set of lungs on him like any good baby has. He was one of us in every way. The Lord Jesus arrived on earth from heaven with perfection and godliness, to be sure, but he was still absolutely, fully human. Make no mistake about it, my friend, that was a deliberate equation from God himself. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel said to Joseph, she, talking about Mary, shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. 
Let me repeat what I said earlier. Jesus is the only bridge by which God comes to earth and people come to heaven. By the way, that was the purpose of Jesus' life. That was his motto, if you if 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 it were, when he said this in his ministry in Luke chapter 19, verse number 10, for the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Understand, that's the ultimate reason that he came. That's the primary reason that he came. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And can I tell you this? He's still on that same mission today. He's still seeking and he's still saving those who are lost. Now, having said all of that, I want to turn your attention back to our text verses this morning, where we find in this most blessed, most awesome, most profound, most famous passage in literature on the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to focus your attention on three thoughts, particularly as they relate to the question, what about the end? There's very little mentioned about the end other than that last statement in verse number seven, because there was no room at the end. What's the big deal about that? Why is that important? I believe God puts everything in his Bible for a reason. There's not one thing that's filler. There's not one thing that's fluff. It's not just to add color to the commentary. Amen. When God puts something in his word, there's a specific reason for it. And the fact that he noted that there was no room in the inn has great significance. Let's think about that this morning. First of all, I want you to understand this. There was no one at home during that first Christmas. There was no one at home during that first Christmas. Isn't it true that about every 12 months, people begin to feel a need to be home for Christmas? They want to go home for Christmas. There's something about Christmas that wants families to come together, to be together. For the vast majority of our years in ministry, Christmas was the only time that Stephanie and I got to take our sons and go home to mom and dad's house. We'd make the trip. Uh, Sometimes, there were a few years, we made the trip from North Carolina to New York. That was a long trip in a couple of days. There was a lot of snow up there. They lived just off Lake Erie, just outside of Buffalo. Who in the world wants to go to Buffalo, <laughs> New York, at Christmas time? You know, the, the, the cloud sneezes and you get 47 inches of snow up there. But we went because it was Christmas. We wanted to be with mom and dad. Sometimes it was from North Carolina to Illinois. Sometimes it was from Georgia to Illinois. But it was one time a year we got to go home, be with mom and dad. This year, we're going to be here. This is home now. And my sons are coming home to spend Christmas with me. My grandbabies are coming to Pop Pops. It's going to be exciting. You know, I, I... If I disappear Friday at about 10 p.m. and you don't hear from me until Sunday morning, there's a reason. All right? Livy and Ray Ray are going to be occupying all of my attention. Amen. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm looking forward to showing them off. Amen. I I, I have better than a picture next Sunday. (laughs) Amen. All right. 
I don't know why I chased that rabbit, but I felt good about it. Amen. <laughs> oh, we want to go home for Christmas. Matter of fact, there are songs written about that, right? Some of you are already, I, when I started this, you started singing it in your head, didn't you? I know. See, every, but I want you to understand, everyone who participated in that very first Christmas was away from home. And they were away from home so that you and I could find our way to our eternal home in heaven and forever celebrate the Christ of Christmas. When that first group of worshipers and participants gathered in Bethlehem that day, they had no idea that their gathering would be immortalized and celebrated every year for 2,000 and some odd years. Let's think about that. Who wasn't home for that first Christmas? Well, first there's Mary and Joseph. They weren't at home. When Caesar Augustus declared a census should be taken in Palestine, the expectant parents were forced to leave their home in Nazareth of Galilee on the north side of Israel and make a slow, difficult journey to Bethlehem, which was the home of Joseph's ancestors. That was an arduous 90-mile journey. It probably took them most of a week, and that was the reason that young couple was probably one of the last to arrive in the city of David, which forced them to find shelter in not their home, but and not an inn, but a dirty, dank stable. But understand, it was in that dirty, dank stable that the prophet Micah had predicted they were going to be on that world-changing night that was the first Christmas. What about the angels? They weren't home on that first Christmas night either. Matter of fact, they had left their heavenly home to come to the sky above Bethlehem to announce the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. I've often thought about that, how different earth must have seemed to those angels. I wonder how they must have wondered about the way the king of heaven and earth was introduced to his future earthly subjects. Can you imagine what they thought about the king of heaven being born in a stable, cushioned on straw, swaddled in rough linen, and attended to by humble shepherds? They weren't at home that first Christmas. By the way, what about those shepherds? They weren't at home either. Even though they were probably the closest to home, having in all likelihood coming from Bethlehem or at least the area around Bethlehem. But here they were out keeping watch over their flocks by night. Somebody had to do it. You know, for all those people who don't do any shopping for Christmas Eve, somebody has to keep Walmart open. Amen. That's what they were doing. They had to keep the animals fed. They had to keep the, the, the flock tended to. And so on that first Christmas, they were away from home. They weren't snuggled all uh, uh, comfy into their beds with visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads. No, they were in a field. And the angels came. So they rushed into town to find the birthplace of Israel's new king. Speaking about kings, what about those three guys? Now, we know from the scriptures about two years later when the group of magi, probably astronomers from Persia, showed up and they made their way to the house where the young family was staying then. Oh, but that first Christmas, they were, uh, they were away from their home and they, spent a, they, they began a journey of nearly two years that took them the farthest away from home from anybody involved in the Christmas story. But yet they still came. Out of a sincere desire to acknowledge the birth of this new king that the Hebrew scriptures had prophesied and that the star had told them had come. There's one other person that wasn't at home 
that first Christmas. And that's the Lord Jesus himself. By far the farthest from home. But understand, my friends, that his absence from his heavenly home and his presence in that stable of Bethlehem is history's greatest miracle. It's the history's greatest mystery. And it's the cause of not only the first, but every subsequent Christmas that was to come. Can I remind you that Jesus gave up the pleasures of home? Pleasures of his home in heaven, his home in eternity, those streets of gold, the gates of pearl. He gave up all of that in order to secure for us a heavenly, eternal home where we'll never die and we'll never grow old, where no tear will ever fall. And we've got no need of a son or of a temple because God in all of his glory and Jesus in all of his light is there. Whew. Amen. Glory, hallelujah. Hey, somebody ought to give Jesus a word of praise right there. It's okay to praise him. It's okay to get a little. Uh, don't, don't make me come down there and do it for you. All right? So I want you to think about the fact that no one was at home that first Christmas. But number two, I want you to consider this. There was no room at the inn. There was no room at the inn. I, I, I don't know about you, but each and every time I read the story of the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2, and each and every time I see either a play or a performance uh, uh, that gives accent to the part where there was no room in the inn for the birth of Christ, and as a result of that, he had to be born in some stinking livery stable. When I think about that and I meditate upon that, it makes me sad. It really does. Because the truth be told, the entire story of the life of Jesus Christ on earth is summed up in verse number 7 of Luke chapter 2. She brought forth her birthborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. What a sad commentary, isn't it? No room for Jesus. Here's the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and yet there was no room for Him. What does that mean? How are we to think about that? How are we to, to look upon that? Understand, in Bethlehem, they begrudged the Son of God a place to be born. And as a result of that, in life, there was no permanent room for Him anywhere as He wandered up and down this earth. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus said this, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. They begrudged him a room in the inn, and they begrudged room for him even in his own family. Because John 5, verse 5 tells us, Neither did his brethren believe in him. There was no room for him in his hometown because the Bible tells us that Nazareth begrudged him his fame. They asked in Matthew chapter 13, verses 55 to 57, Is not this the carpenter's son? Whence then hath this man all of these things? And they were offended in him. Then there's the Pharisees. They had no room for Jesus. They begrudged him his power. They, they even went so far as to declare in Matthew 12, verse 24, this fella doth cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They begrudged him his own right to go to church. 
and be in his father's house. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 23, they ask, By what authority doeth thou these things? If you remember in that passage, he's cleaning out the temple with, with all of the merchandise and all of the worldliness and all of the thievery that was going on in God's house. My house is a, a house of worship, a house of prayer. The chief priests begrudged him. The religious folks had no room for him either. They begrudged him the Sabbath of which he was the Lord because on the Sabbath day he had the audacity as God to heal the sick and make whole the man with the withered hand. They begrudged him even the worship of harlots and publicans. Luke chapter 15. This was their accusation. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And thank God he does. Simon the Pharisee begrudged him even the tears and kisses on his feet, being dried with the hair of a forgiven streetwalker, the woman who was a sinner. Simon swore, listen, if you're going to take that from her, there's no way you're a prophet. Judas Iscariot, one of his own disciples, begrudged him the perfume of that alabaster box of ointment that was broken upon him by the love of Mary. Folks begrudged him even an hour of prayer as he sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane for you and for me. They broke into that garden with their torches and their swords and their staves. They kissed him with a traitor's kiss. They bound him and led him away to trial and murder. Even in his death, the, the senseless malice of a, a wicked race of men had no room for Jesus while he was on the cross, dying for their sin and mine. The rulers begrudged his name. He is the king of the Jews. They nailed it above his head on the cross. And, and the Jewish leaders wanted all of that taken down. They begged Pilate to change it. Don't call him that. They begrudged him his clothes in his hour of shame. They stripped him naked, seamless garment and all. They begrudged him a drink of water when in his dying agony he said, I thirst. And instead of water, they gave him vinegar and gall. They begrudged his poor, tired body, even the peace that death should have brought. Because the Bible says after he gave up the ghost, they pierced a spear deep into his side, bringing out blood and water. They begrudged even the testimony of their sin and his love that his hanging body gave to the world because they hastened to take it down so, uh, before sunset so it wouldn't be hanging on their precious Passover. What I'm saying is they had no room for Jesus even then. When he rose again, they even begrudged him proof that he was the Son of God that that resurrection brought. Chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, oh, they knew they had a problem with that empty tomb. How are we going to explain that? How are we going to stop all of this now? And so they gave large sums of money to the soldiers, saying, ye, his disciples came by night, stole him away while we slept. If this come to be, we will persuade him and secure you. Hey, they begrudged him the proof of an empty tomb. By trying to convince everybody, it was just simply a lie told by his disciples. Oh, but listen, it wasn't just folks in his life that begrudged him. The truth of the matter is, even today, men begrudge Jesus. They begrudge his miracles, saying they never happened. It's impossible. We know from science now that none of that's true. They begrudge his virgin birth. Come on, that's biologically impossible. They begrudge his bodily resurrection. 
Oh, it's he rose in spirit. His, his body was stolen. He, he didn't really die. He just kind of passed out and became unconscious. And on the third day, the, the coolness of the tomb and the aroma of the spices revived him. And he somehow worked himself out of that tomb. And he went on and lived and died somewhere else, a failure. They begrudge even the inspiration of his words. He's not God speaking. He's just a good teacher. He's just a prophet. They begrudge him his deity. Oh, listen, he can't be God and man. That just doesn't make sense. He's he's just a man, a good man, a good teacher, but he's just a man. They begrudge his deity. By the way, they still begrudge his hold on the hearts of men. Oh, yeah, you say you're a Christian, but you don't really believe that. You don't really live like that. You're, 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 you're just a hypocrite like everybody else. Even today, there's no room. No room for Jesus. Well, that's a sad thing, isn't it? Our world loves to celebrate Christmas as long as it's without Christ. They'll take Christmas but they don't want Jesus. But for you and I as believers, when we look at the sweet baby Jesus in the cradle of the Bethlehem stable, and then when we go to the cross of Calvary and see the Son of God hanging there for our sins, we understand that one day we're going to see the Son of David wearing a crown that's going to be placed upon him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we know that baby born in Bethlehem, that baby born in a barn, someday is going to be the king. And someday, by the way, he already is, amen? But the world is going to recognize and see that and every knee shall bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will reign victorious. So when we think about that in, we understand no one was at home that first Christmas. We understand there was no room at the end that first Christmas. But as we think about that, we must remember that there was a purpose for his coming that first Christmas. There was a purpose. The truth is, we shouldn't have to ask that question. If we know the Word of God, if we know the Bible, if we know the Lord is our Savior, we shouldn't have to ask the question, what was the purpose of his coming? But there may be some of you here this morning who've forgotten the reason he came. There may be some of you here this morning that you've never understood what Christmas is all about. And you've never understood the real meaning of Christmas. So very quickly this morning, I'm going to give you three reasons why he came. Number one, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. The Son of God came. The Son of God showed up that Bethlehem morning, that Bethlehem night, that Bethlehem time. He showed up as a baby in a barn to destroy the works of the devil. Now listen, that's every bit of some good news. Amen? What are the works of the devil? Oh, I don't know. Murder? Lying? Oppression? Everything else that's born in hell is the work of the devil, amen? Your bitterness, your unforgiving spirit, your foul mouth, your wicked thinking, amen? Come on, we can keep listing them all. 
Tell you what, if you had a piece of paper, and uh, don't write it in your Bible, but if you had a piece of paper, you sit down and write down the two or three things that give you the most trouble spiritually. That's the work of the devil, friend. The word sin is a very frightful word indeed. Hey, preacher, this is Christmas. We ought to be talking about something positive, and we ought to be talking about something happy, and we ought to be talking about something that puts a smile on our face. What in the world are you talking about sin for? That's why he came. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's why he came. No man ever played with sin that sin, get, sin did not get the better of him. Maybe you've played with your sin so long that your case seems hopeless. Oh, but friend, thanks be to God. Sin never took anybody so low. It never bound anyone so tightly that Jesus Christ couldn't reach down and set them free. I'm reminded of the old hymn he used to sing down south. When he reached down, he reached way down for me. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. Your sin brought you low and you were stuck in the muck and mire of sin. And Jesus lifts you out of all of that. That's why he came, beloved, to destroy the works of the devil. And so I come to you with this message this morning. No matter what your past has been, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've gone, if you will turn to Jesus, he will set you free. He will destroy the works of the devil in you, and he will give you victory. Thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second reason he came. We find that in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he, that's talking about Jesus, you know that he was manifested to take away our sin. You know that he, Jesus Christ, was manifested to take away our sin. Somebody better get happy real quick. <laughs> Jesus put himself on the cross. In order to take away your sin, my friend. Maybe you're here, sitting here this morning and say, Preacher, my thoughts have been so dirty. My thoughts are so impure. God says to you this morning, it's all taken away. Psalm 103, verse 12, I will remove thine iniquities from them as far as the east is from the west. Maybe you say this morning, preacher, you don't understand. I've cursed, I've blasphemed, I've profaned, and yet the word of God still rings back. It's all taken away because Isaiah 38, 17 says, I will cast all thy sins behind my back. Oh, preacher, I've led a double life. I'm one thing in church, but I'm another thing at home. Hey, listen, the glad news leaps out of the pages of the Bible. It's all taken away. I'll cast thy sin into the depths of the sea, Micah 7 verse 19 says. Oh, but preacher, I understand all of that, but I'm a crook. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a deceiver. Folks, none of that matters because God still answers. It's all taken away. I'll blot out thy trans iniquities as a thick cloud, Isaiah 44, verse 22. See, I'm here to tell you because of Jesus, because of his birth in that filthy, dirty, rotten stable, Jesus is manifested to take away your sins. Jer Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 31, verse 34, because of that, God says, therefore, I will remember thy iniquity against thee no more forever. 
He came to take away your sins. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Now my soul is free, and in my heart's a song buried in the deepest sea. Yes, that's good enough for me. I shall live eternally, praise God. My sins are G-O-N-E, gone. Amen. Amen. We ought to shout, and we ought to give Him praise. Amen. It's okay to do that. I realize we're Baptists in Washington. We're not Baptists in Georgia or Mississippi or Alabama or West Virginia. I I get that. But you can still say amen to that. That'll work. I feel like I'm home now. But there's a third reason. There's a third reason. John chapter 14, verse 9. Jesus said this. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Jesus was manifested in order to show us who God is. The only perfect revelation God ever made of himself, he made in Jesus Christ. And friend, if you will look at God through Jesus, you'll know what kind of God he is. Because Jesus said, he that's seen me hath seen the Father. You think through all these thoughts that I've shared with you this morning. The fact that no one was home that first Christmas. The fact there was no room for Jesus in the inn that night. The fact that he came to show you the Father. Let me ask you, with all of that in mind this morning, let me ask you this. Have you any room for Jesus? Because ultimately, that's what matters. You weren't there that night. Unless you're really, 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 really old. You weren't there that night. Well, if I would have been the innkeeper, I would have let him in. No, you wouldn't have. Because you wouldn't have known who he was either. So what you would have done then is of zero consequence. You're here now. You're living now. You're faced with Christ now. I wonder, do you have room for him now? Do you have room for him now? Or have you crowded him out of your heart? Uh, Do you have time to serve him now? Do you have time to read his word now? Do you have time to pray now? Will you receive him now? Will you let him in now? Or will you go to hell because there's no room in your heart for Jesus, the Son of God? Isn't it amazing at Christmas time, we we got people who will stand in line to see Santa Claus? People stand in line to buy a $5 crock pot. They'll stand in line to put stuff on layaway. They'll stand in line to spend hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars on Christmas gifts. Hello. But I wonder how many people would stand in line to see Jesus. I wonder how many would actually take any time to stand in line to be touched by him, to be healed by him, to have their sins forgiven. If you're not willing to stand in line for Christ, how can you say 
Well, if I had been the innkeeper, I would have let him in. Come on now. Have you any room for Jesus? Oh, dear friend, let him in today. Let him in so Christ can bring into your soul a sweet peace. Because the truth is, you'll never know peace without him. He brings salvation. You'll never know salvation without him. He brings everlasting eternal life. You'll never know everlasting eternal life without him. The sad truth is in our world, even today, many still have no room for Jesus. They'll gladly take the Christmas of Christ, but they want nothing to do with the Christ of Christmas. Oh, but those few who do receive him, how happy and how blessed they are. In John chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says he came into his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him... To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. At this glorious season, let me urge you to claim Christ. Let me urge you, if you've not received him, to receive him. Let me urge you that if you have received him and you are a son of God, would you make room for him in your life? I'm not talking about any room. I mean, make the best room for him and, and, and give him the best of your day and give him the best of your time and give him the best of your service and, and give him the best of your love and the best of your devotion. Why? Because he gave his best to you. He's worthy of all of that. Matter of fact, Paul says it's your reasonable service to do that. Oh, there are a lot of you. You make room for Jesus. You just shove him in a broom closet somewhere. You let him out for a couple hours on Sunday morning once or twice a month. Come on now. You don't talk with him every day. You don't study him every day. You don't walk with him every day. Maybe once a week or once or twice a month, you'll tip your hat to him and say, hey, at least I've got a Christian upbringing. Folks, there are a lot of people with a Christian upbringing who are going to split hell wide open one day. Because they haven't given Jesus the place he deserves. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that he is to have the preeminence in our life. First place. Not just a place. Listen, it's because God himself invaded human history on a search and rescue mission for you and me that we can be saved. That's why Jesus had to come. That's why we have to receive him as our Savior. That's why on September 12, 1978, as 11-year-old boy, I did exactly that. And friend, if you haven't done that, you can do so right now. You, you can say in the words of an old Christmas carol, Thou didst leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. But in Bethlehem's home was there found no room for thy holy nativity. Oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. There is room in my heart for thee. Well, preacher, that's all good. But what about the inn? Really, what, you preached a whole lot of stuff this morning, and you ain't said hardly anything about the inn. Because the inn ain't the picture. The inn's not the point. See, no room in the inn forced him to the stable. Do you understand how significant that is? 
Why is the fact that there was no room at the inn and that he was born in his... Why is that significant? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever paid a lick of attention to that? I think it's significant for a variety of reasons. A bunch, as a matter of fact. Remember when Jesus first started his earthly ministry, John the Baptist is preaching, baptizing... And he's standing on a hillside one, one day, and Jesus comes, and John the Baptist looks out and says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Remember that? Have you ever read through the book of Revelation? Book of Revelation, over 50 times, Jesus is called the Lamb. The Lamb. At the end of the book. Now, why is that significant? Because if you go back and begin reading in Genesis, and you read from Genesis all the way through, the, through, through Revelation, you're going to come to the conclusion very quickly that God the Father has always had a plan that it was going to take a lamb to bring forgiveness of sins. From Genesis to Revelation, the lamb brought forgiveness. From Genesis to Revelation, the lamb provided forgiveness of sin. Jesus shows up, begins his earthly ministry, and the first thing he's called is the lamb of God. Coincidence? I think not. God points to a lamb all through the scripture as a source of forgiveness for sin. And let me ask you this, what better place for a lamb to be born than in a stable? What better place for a lamb to be born than in a stable? Not in an inn, not in comfort, not in a place that focuses and highlights man and their comfort and their opulence and their importance but a stable, surrounded by animals, surrounded by everything that points to the discomfort and the hardship and the grief that sin caused. There's no better place for a lamb to be born. You listen to the words of this song. I trust it will be a blessing to you. No proper place, no regal palace to receive a royal birth. God.
heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, let me ask the question again. Do you have room for Jesus? Do you have room for him? Have you received him? If not, then the meaning of Christmas for you is nothing but gifts and trees and Christmas carols and all of that. The real meaning of Christmas means nothing to you if you don't know the Christ of Christmas. I wonder if there was someone that say, Pastor, I'm not sure this morning if I have ever been born again. I don't know if there ever was a time in my life when I received the gift of God's Son. I'm not sure if I've ever been saved from my sin. I'm not sure if I, were to go, if I were to die today that I would go to heaven. Preacher, would you pray for me? Heads bowed, eyes closed. There's no one looking around. I, I, I'm not going to uh, in any way, shape, or form embarrass you or call you out. 